Welcome to the Being Known Podcast with my friend, Dr. Kurt Thompson. My friend, Pepper Sweeney. We are here to discover and explore what it means to be truly known. Hmm. Hey, Kurt. Hey, Pep. Great to be back recording again. So great. So hmm. great. We've already had, I, you know, we, we had the opportunity, Kurt and I and Amy, had the opportunity this morning to spend some real nice connecting time before we started hmm. recording that I just cherish and, and mm. um, appreciate. It's like, it's, mm. it's, it's great. And I want mm. to continue mm. through today's episode. So we are talking this season, this fourth season of the Being Known podcast, we are talking about trauma. And last season, we, uh, we went through Kurt's newest book, The Soul of Desire. And I believe it was episode four of last season, we talked about trauma and shame. And I think that's probably a good place for us to start today, sort of harken back to some of those things, mm-hmm. just to give us a, a ground level of where, of where we're going to go this season. And today's episode is all about the definitions, all mm-hmm. about the definitions, so we're all on the same page. Yeah. Well, it's a great reminder, Pepper, that we had this encounter with trauma and shame in uh, our last season. And I, uh, as you and I were just talking about before we started our recording, the book, The Soul of Desire, is in, in, you know, part of its intention is to draw our attention to beauty. And that's one of the things that we're going to continue to come back around to here, even in this season, that as we talk about trauma, as we get, you know, much more granular, much more down in the detail, that we are reminded that in the face of trauma, that we also want to remember that beauty is coming to find us. Hmm. And it's coming to find us because it knows that we are traumatized. It's not just passively, negligently happening to be passing by in the neighborhood where we happen to be. It's coming to find us. That in the gospel, the beauty of our king is coming for us. And I, I, want our, I want you all to remember that as we talk about the details, like we will today about definitions, as we talk about this, uh, and, and so therefore, like chapter, chapter four and, and episode four of last season's podcast continues to kind of draw our attention back to beauty, even as we talk about the definitions. So I would invite you to go back and listen to that episode. Uh, that can give you a kind of a broad overview of some of the things that we're going to be talking about over the course of this entire season. Right. But recognizing that uh, at all times, beauty is hovering. And uh, beauty wants to come so that we may bathe in it. It, As we were saying earlier, it's, it's not a thing that I want to turn to as a way to distract myself from my trauma or to dissociate from my trauma or pretend it doesn't exist, but rather to allow beauty to become a salve. So when you say um, in episode four, you said that trauma shatters the lens through which we see our lives. Mm-hmm. So as you're talking about this salve, mm-hmm. um, and I'm seeing this shattered lens, mm-hmm. I'm somehow seeing imaging beauty kind of coming into mm. those cracks, mm. you mm. know, um, mm. and helping us, mm. to, helping that lens to mm. uh, find its way to clarity mm. as best we can. Right. Right. Yeah. And it's easy for us in our shattering 
because the lens is so fractured, it's easy for us to say, well, that's a fractured lens. There's, I, I can't imagine there would be anything that I could want to look at through that lens. I right. can't imagine that anything would come through that lens that would be of any value, let alone something of beauty. And that lens, which is the way that we tend to look at our lives in the wake of trauma, is the very uh, portal through which the light of Jesus is coming. Right. And, uh, and so, again, just to remind our listeners that uh, any opportunity we have to put ourselves in the path of ongoing beauty is a way for us to affirm that we are inviting and opening the door for beauty to come through and to find us in the face of things that are really difficult. Yeah. And I think with that in mind, we can, you know, we're, we're going to talk, first of all, about some fundamentals. Uh, some of these things you will have heard before in that uh, fourth episode of last season. But now we're going to really kind of pay a little more granular attention to these things. When we first start to talk about trauma, we talk about two defining pillars in the clinical community. We talk about the first pillar being the perception of experiencing something. It could be a single event. It could be a series of events over time. But in those events, we have the perception of being overwhelmed. That is a physically um, mediated, emotionally shattering, cognitively disruptive experience in which I am overwhelmed. And, you know, we sometimes have a hard time finding a word that's any more descriptive or detailed than the word I feel overwhelmed. And when we use that word, I think most of us who are here in the room uh, would say, like, we kind of get what that means. And the second pillar, so there's this sense of being overwhelmed. The second pillar is this sense, this perception that I don't have any agency to change my experience. I can't do anything about it. I am powerless. So, I remember uh, when our daughter was in elementary school, and I heard about this story later. Uh, my my wife told it; she heard it from some of the kids, from the people at school. That they, uh, uh, one of the administrators was in the office, and they heard the kids running down the hall, and they said, "The lockers are on Rachel. The lockers are on Rachel." And apparently, Rachel was standing outside <laughs> her locker, and the lockers came loose from their bolted, like oh holdings goodness. on the wall on the concrete block, and they fell over. And here she is. I think she's like in third or third grade. Oh. And she's pinned under the lockers. Now, she wasn't hurt because, you know, but because it wasn't like a huge... But, you know, she's overwhelmed. Like, there's nothing sure. that she could do. But she had help. She had other third graders who were running down the hall to the teacher saying the lockers are on top of Rachel. Right. And... uh Apparently, uh, the teacher who was hearing it at first thought she was, with their wah, wah their, their R's and W's are high, kind of like there were, you know, a family of walkers, the, the walkers were in the school, and her first thought, like, what were, what are the walkers doing on top of Rachel? They tell them to get off. That was the walkers <laughs> who were on top of Rachel. Well, it was the lockers. They couldn't get their R, L's, whatever. Sure. So that's an example of, like, we're overwhelmed, but we can even, we, we've got help that can come. So... The perception, though, is not just that I am overwhelmed. It's not just that I have no help. I have no agency. But it is my perception of this. And this is what's crucially important. Because uh, for those of us who are outside of somebody's experience, we could look at that person and say, well, gosh, like, I don't, I don't know that you'd call that trauma. I mean, like, as I see it, like, that wasn't that over. How could that be overwhelming? In the sense, and, and the really issue is like, what is my perception at that given moment? My, my perception is, and you know, it's like when we, our family was uh, going up what used to be called the Sears Tower, 
uh, and now's the Willis Tower in Chicago, and they've constructed these big extending acrylic glass blocks that go out at the observation deck. They go out and they're clear. You can look right, right to the street below, like 105 or 10 stories or however it is. And, you know, you you can walk out into the into these into these cubes. And, you know, it's like you're suspended out over the edge of the building. And we got there. My son walked out. My wife walked out. I took one step and I couldn't go because my brain is looking through the glass to 110 floors below onto the street. And I'm like, no, that's really stupid. And I had to put my foot on the glass and work my way out while my son is like, he's jumping up and down out in the glass. And like, I'm, I'm about to like pass out because... I'm perceiving something now, like, like there's, there's all, all the structure. It's all like, no, you're not going to fall to the, to the ground. Like, but my perception is this is lunacy. Yeah. And so perception is a really powerful thing. And so it's really important for us as we are, because some of us even would say about our experiences, like I shouldn't be overwhelmed. I feel it, but like, there's something wrong with me. So, so I'm going to act as if I wasn't. I'm going to act as if like that never happened. I'm going to act as if the brutality that took place in my kitchen when I watched my father beat my brother to a pulp. I'm going to pretend that like, that, like, I sh- I, like it didn't happen to me. So I shouldn't somehow be like upset by this. So, so perception. And then this perception of absence of agency, right? The, 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 old, the age old story of, you know, all you need to do is to take a, a newborn elephant and tie its leg to a stake that's in the ground that it can't move and you'll have it for life because by the time that elephant is an adult, it still perceives that it is unable to move the stake, even though it could pull it up and go with it at will because there is a perception in that elephant's mind. There's a perception in my mind that I am unable to do anything. And then sometimes it's true, right? Sometimes I'm a 10-year-old kid and I can't fight off the brutality of my parents in the kitchen. I can't do that. Like, that is true. The challenge is that then I'm now 40 years old and I still feel like I'm 10. And my perception is really quite durable. So that's really an important thing to recognize, that, that perception is important. And so we can't just say to a person, Oh, well, now that you're 40 and you're no longer 10, this shouldn't be a problem for you anymore. Right. And so we're going to get to this in the application portion at the end of our time because so many of us have moments of being overwhelmed that we simply don't pay attention to. We just kind of move right past them, but we collect them. And what we're ultimately talking about here then is that when we talk about this degree of perceived, what I call perceived violence or violation, now, when the lockers fell on our daughter, uh, the lockers themselves were not intending to do violence to her. Right? There, was, there was no intention in that sense. But if you're Rachel, like, you do feel a bit violated, like when the lockers right. are laying on top of you, right? There's this, yeah. felt, again, the perception of violence that is being perpetrated. Right. Those walkers probably loosened the bolts of the lockers <laughs> so that the kids were all screaming, the walkers are on Rachel. I understand. It's a tough moment. <laughs> oh my gosh. Right. And so there is this sense though that in each case where trauma takes place, what we're really talking about is that there is a rupture of some form and no repair. Right. In our first season, I think it was, maybe our second season, after we, we talk about this notion of rupture and repair. 
Mm-hmm. We talk when we talk about attachment about how secure attachment is built not just in the absence of any ruptures, but when those ruptures that do occur, when they are fully and durably repaired. And with trauma, those ruptures that take place in small collected ways or that take place in singular incidents, they don't get repaired. And maybe they don't get repaired because someone didn't come back and apologize, or sometimes they don't get repaired because it just takes a long time for the repair t- to take place. I, I have a, I have a, I had a friend when I was in high school. When, when we were in high school, his, uh, his family, his father owned a, uh, a, a gas station. And uh, I'll never forget, I think we were juniors in high school. It's a very small town. And all the sirens were going off, fire, right, so forth and so on. And the gas station tanks had exploded. And my friend's dad was caught inside the gas station. And he lived, but he sustained third-degree burns over like 85% of his body. Mm. And the road back uh, took years. And I remember, I, I knew his dad, and I remember eventually meeting him again and talking with him and so forth. And like, and you can see the scarring that's taking place sure. and it's just, it's, it's, you know, you're a young high school student. It's just, it's overwhelming. And so the repair for him was not something that was going to take place in a day or in a year. And he went on to have multiple surgeries, right. For grafting and so forth and so on. Like that's, that's the kind of, that kind of a thing is a traumatic event in which the repair is not, easily completed, but the intention toward repair is also equally important. Yeah, it um, makes me think of, of all the scars that we don't see, right. the kind of traumas that we don't see that people are walking around with right. that need the same kind of care and attention, right. Right. the same kind of grafting, right? Right, right. Yeah. You know, just this week, as uh, you and Amy and I were talking about, just this week, I, I, we, I, I saying like I, I had this kind of moment of epiphany, which I'm like, oh my gosh, like I just have dozens of moments every day in which I'm anxious about what, uh, uh, you know, in the moment that I'm anxious, it feels really intense. But what do I do? I might say, oh, I feel overwhelmed by this anxiety about a small thing. But what do I? I just pass by it. I just, I just, I just move by. I just, I just keep going. And in that sense, we might say, oh, I have agency to change it, but that's not necessarily agency to address the, the source of my anxiety itself. I'm just distracting myself from it. Right. I'm just moving on. And anybody who's around me, they'd have no idea that I'm anxious. Most people would not describe me as an anxious guy. Underneath, right, just below the surface, just below the surface of, like, I, like I'm anxious all the time. Not in a way that keeps me from functioning. But in a way that I've found, you know, I found effective means to dissociate from, distract myself from, just keep moving on. But I collect, I I have to burn energy to contain all that. Sure. And in this sense, we, we like, so to, to your point, like, I was in a, I was in a gathering once in which we were talking about, you know, these confessional communities that we do and. Uh, one of the participants in the gathering was saying, well, gosh, you know, the people that you talk about in your book, they seem like, you know, when they're, when they're talking about their stories, they seem like these are, these are folks who are like, they really need to be in these groups because their stories would lead us to believe that they're in trouble. Like they, these child, like, well, like, what do you, what do you do for like folks like us? And I said, like, 
No, you need to understand. The people that you read about the books, they are you. Right. These are the people who, if you were to meet them in the street or have them in your boardroom, which you probably do, these are the people whose lives are underneath the radar, experiencing all kinds of stuff that nobody knows. But they're burning energy, the likes of which they kept hit, they keep hidden until they end up in my office or they end up in the pastor's office or something like this happens. And so it, it, it's, it's important to know then that when we, when we talk about trauma, that, and, and we'll get to this a little later in our, in our recording today, we, we, we need to recognize that there are those things that are going on in, perhaps in all of us that we've worked really hard to just kind of keep at bay. I have three stories that we can talk about that give us a representation of these things. The first story, because we like to talk about trauma in different forms, we talk about trauma form A, right? this, this form of trauma in which basically there were things that we didn't receive in life that we should have received. Now, these are, again, in, in both these cases, uh, when I say both trauma A and trauma B, uh, sometimes uh, it's obvious and sometimes it's not obvious at all. Trauma A involved uh, uh, my friend Greg, who grew up in a home in which both of his parents were heroin addicts. And he had two younger brothers, Greg did. And from the time Greg could remember, his job was to survive long enough to keep his brothers from losing their lives. And in order for Greg to do that, of course, he wasn't getting nurtured from his parents. In order for Greg to do that, Greg had to just get life done every day. And he can remember back to the time when he was about eight years old where he was already cooking meals in the evening. Right. And if you ask Greg a lot of things about what he feels, he would say, well, I, I don't feel bad about that. I don't feel bad about that. I don't have any memory of feeling bad about things. Like you just had to, you just had to get on with life. Now, we might say that, well, there were these things that parents were doing to him. Actually, when his parents were not mean. They were not brutal. They were not, they were not angry people. They were just absent. They were just AWOL yeah. in many respects. And so Greg grows up to, of course, as fate would have it, to marry a woman who is kind and who is emotionally available and connected. Because, and she's married now to a guy, Greg, who gets it done, right? Greg is like, I, I can't, I'm like, because I've been getting it done since I was eight. But there's just a lot on his landscape that is missing. And so here she is, like the missing part of his puzzle. Only he comes to find out that now that you're married to the person who has all this emotional awareness and intensity, and she's like in your life, she wants more from you and like he can't deliver. And now marriage becomes really difficult because Greg can't access things that he never had. And as we start to talk about it with him, he just he can't even name the things that he can't name because so much of it's missing. And so that's, that's one form in which trauma happens to us through negligence. And that's trauma A. That's trauma A, right? Yeah. Okay. Trauma B is a different form in which we talk about things that happen to us that shouldn't happen to us. Mm. I have a friend, Sam, who's in his mid to late 30s. Uh, this is a guy who had a graduate degree, married with kids, uh, loved his life in which he was flourishing and uh, he was at the wrong place at the wrong time and was kidnapped, held in a trunk of a car for three days. What? Like, you can't make this up. And uh, his life has not ever been the same since then. In this sense, 
he was overwhelmed and unable to be helped. And this would be what we would call a single incident. This would be trauma B, but type one, right? This is a, it is a, is a form in which we're like a single incident that happens to somebody. Right. And we can, we can, in many, you know, some of us who are listening, we might, we might think of a single incident. I might've been in a bad traffic accident. I might have uh, been in a fire like my friend's father was. I might've had, there may've been other things, these, these incidents that take place that I can name and, you know, we will, in, other, in, in, in future episodes, we'll talk about intervention and treatment and so forth, all the things that we do about this. But it is to say that we can have these single incidents that sometimes, for different people, can have different, different effects. You can have two people who are in the same, who are in the car and in the same accident, and one person has a very different response to right. it. But we in our audience, we can, we, we, some of us are listening, we're like, we're like yeah, I can, I can name this particular thing. That, that t- took place. And again, remember, perception is really important because it's tempting for us to say, well, because I wasn't in that gas station fire, my single incident that has somehow undone me, like that's not, my, my incident isn't, isn't bad enough to be, like it shouldn't be traumatic. It's not like because we start to compare our traumas with other people's right, traumas, right. which we want to say is completely, uh, we want to completely dissuade people from doing this. And so... We then have this third form, this type, two, you know, this type two of, of, of trauma B. This, this is what we call complex trauma, where things can happen over long periods of time. My friend Julia, who was a person who, uh, you know, in, in, you know, there are all kinds of things about this person's story, but they found themselves uh, being sexually uh, both first groomed and then sexually mistreated from the time they were in middle school. Uh, but they, it took place in, primarily in the context of a religious school. Hmm. And, you know, this took place six decades ago, five, five decades ago. And it may have been a time when culturally we were less aware of things and so forth and so on. But it's still the case that, the, and this took place probably over a period of five years, five to six years. And it wasn't even brought to light until... After, the, after she left school and there were other people who had also been groomed and mistreated by the same person. And it wasn't until they came out with their story that, you know, Julia was able to finally go back and talk about it. And the whole notion that the trauma, again, the sense of shattering, I, it's not just what's happening to me, but my sense of what I'm able to do about this and having any agency or not doing any of these kinds of things, which is what brings us to this point where it's really important for us to recognize that People can experience a trauma, like I can have a trauma, I can be in the auto accident, I can be in the fire, I can be in combat, and I may not experience it as traumatic. Not everybody experiences the same event in the same way. Right. And so given that being the case, we want to approach this always with a spirit of humility in not saying, well... You know, my experience, you know, just wasn't that bad. It wasn't as bad as George's or as Sam. Like, it wasn't like Greg's or Sam's or Julia's. And so, like, I can't, what, what do I have to complain about? Nor can we say, well, gosh, your experience wasn't that bad. Like, why are, why are you, like, what's, like, I don't, I don't understand why you're having so much trouble. Like, you shouldn't be having this much trouble. Remember that part of, and we'll, as we'll talk in just a moment, we, we, you know, these kinds of traumatic things, these violations that take place, these are, in many respects, not 
like unto what happened to my daughter Rachel when the lockers fell on her. Mm-hmm. Now, those kinds of things can happen, but with Rachel, like somebody came to her aid. If this had happened when she was alone in the hallway and nobody else was in the school that she couldn't call to, the whole sense of perceiving that, like, I, I, there's nothing I can do, can generate felt senses within us that, like, I can't do much about this. And so then we walk, like, eventually, like, I can have this felt sense of, like, I'm, I'm powerless under certain conditions. I can feel like I'm powerless, but, like, I get to be an adult and I realize, like, well, gosh, I'm, like, I, I shouldn't have this feeling anymore. I'm, I'm not in third grade anymore. Like, why do I, why do I have this sense that under certain conditions, like, I'm, I'm not going to be okay? And so it's important to recognize that it's tempting for us, and evil will want to do this, to have us condemning ourselves or condemning others for somehow having an experience that we shouldn't be having. And therefore, I often won't talk about it, won't seek help for it. And because I don't seek help for it. I continue then to have to work at containing those parts of me, those experiences that I've had in which I have felt overwhelmed and without any agency to do anything about this. And of course, we can have folks that have, you know, mixed forms of this. We can have, it's not like, well, I only have one kind or I only have another kind. What's most significant is the question of who can we begin to talk with? Who can we begin to become connected with? Who can help us with these things? Remember, the key to being overwhelmed and unable to have agency to change it is the degree to which I experience isolation within the context of my experience. And what we're really wanting to be able to do is to know that someone can come for me in some way, shape, or form. I don't know if there's any more that you you have to say about yeah. that or not? Well, I, I, I would like to just, yeah. you know, you, in hearing these stories, in particular uh, Julia's story, you know, it's, you know, there but for the grace of God go I. Hmm. You know, I, 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 it, I pretty much, uh, my, my childhood, there was a lot of, um, came out years later that, you know, I was tiptoeing through the minefield of pedophilia. Hmm. I mean, it was hmm. all around. Hmm. There was someone in our neighborhood that, it's not my story, so I can't tell that story. Mm-hmm. But, the, you know, there was uh, – I went to Catholic school and the diocese has recently released a list of sexual predators and mm-hmm. I recognize a lot of the names on that list. Mm-hmm. One particular, I had a, a lay teacher who – you know, I, I see it now. Uh, I was being groomed, mm-hmm. you know. Um, he he kept me after school to – told me he was – he was practicing to be a priest and um, wanted me to confess my sins to him. And, mm. and uh, if I did a good job, he would take me out to Ponderosa for a steak lunch or a steak, mm. early steak dinner after school. Mm. Right. And, you know, you, you think of the system that allowed that to happen, you know, um, adults knew that I was staying after school and then I was being taken out for a steak and a shake. Mm. But, um, now that would be completely in itself, completely inappropriate. And I think that then we didn't, it, all this stuff hadn't come out. So we didn't really right. know this was going on. Right. Um, and I just thank God that, you know, I, I, I stayed after, I, I uh, remember two times I, I stayed after and, and was asked these 
incredibly personal questions to a young, you know, uh, I think I was in seventh grade. Mm. Um, mm. And, uh, mm. uh, and then, it, you know, something thankfully in me was just like, mm. this doesn't feel right. I got to mm. I shouldn't mm. be in this situation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so that day, this, I, I said, I can't, I'm, you know, I'm not able to go out to dinner, you know, mm-hmm. afterwards. Mm-hmm. That's how, creepy it felt to me. Mm-hmm. And I actually mm-hmm. walked home from school, which I, which was usually a bus ride. So it was, mm-hmm. you know, was a mm. couple of miles away, but I'm so thankful that, mm. um, that that was avoided. And I think about someone like Julia that had to go through something like that yeah. and, um, just awful. Right. Yeah. Well, you know, you know, there's, uh, that, I, there, there's so much of that, you know, that, that, that takes place. And we wonder about, the number of people who are hearing this now who've had some version of mm. grooming, like what you were experiencing, some version of this. Well, and, you know, I think about, you know, I, I think about the fact that, you know, I walked away, mm. but mm. this person is now on a list that says that everybody didn't walk away. Right. Everybody didn't get to escape from that. Right. And yeah. 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 And, you know, I want to, I want to say also too about, about definitions. Um, you know, one of the things that happens with all this is, uh, kind of given our culture and there is a, a, what I would consider, you know, we've, we've talked about, uh, these, these, these two pillars and we've talked about then these two forms, A and B and these subtypes of type one, mm-hmm. but there's also another counterintuitive story that is in play that we have to be aware of as part of this, as we like to say, you know, evil does its best work in the middle of good work being done. And for such a long time, we really didn't pay attention to trauma as it was. And now that we're beginning to pay attention to trauma, in ways that we actually should. Right. Evil is going to jump on that bandwagon and hijack it in a different way. And one of the ways that it has done it in our culture is that it has created what we what I would consider to be there are elements of our culture that has now become the offended culture. Mm-hmm. So that now I we 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 can we have elements in our experience in which we become so concerned about not hurting anyone that we've now moved to even parenting in ways that actually prevents resilience from developing because we're going to make sure that nobody gets their feelings hurt for absolutely any reason. And so we create elements within all, all, all for the purpose of really protecting against trauma, which is all a good thing. The pendulum swings through the apex of its arc to the other side, and now we create elements of narcissism and fragility all of which is the outgrowth of good intentions. And in many respects is also the necessary logical conclusion to kind of hyper-individualism that is part of our part of our culture. Like, I can't tolerate being offended. And so I am. And so I have 100,000 different ways in which I now am going to make sure that you know that you don't do anything to offend me. Because I can't, I can't, I've learned that I can't, I can't take it. And in both instances, both trauma itself that is real trauma that people experience and the offended culture, both are results of disconnection. Trauma happens, and remember, it's the perception of either being overwhelmed or whatever. Like, that happens because I'm not connected. At some point, something wasn't connected in your school such that somebody was aware of somebody who was grooming people. Right. Right. 
But then when we swing through the other side, like when we create a culture of the offended, it means that those folks also are kind of like left on their own to figure things out. And we're not connected enough to say like, no, we can do hard things. We can sustain hard things. And we then learn that all of this together, evil is going to use this to create what we would call both systemic as well as systematic trauma. And by systemic, we mean it begins in Genesis 3. Um, We've often said that there is no more ancient traumatic system than the male-female system where males do what they do to females and females do what they do to males over and back and forth and back and forth with all the things that the curse talked about from from the very beginning. We've had all kinds of traumatic social structures take place, but none is older than what men and women do to each other. But largely in many respects, we would say, in as we say, like the first act of safety that a man has to commit when it comes to being married and having a family is like, I have to protect people from myself. That's what I have to do. But I can't do that very well if I haven't had the experience of being protected myself by others. And so we've got this male-female thing that is a system itself. And then we have families. When you read 2 Samuel, like chapters 13 and 19, many of us are familiar with, maybe not. I would say, like, go read about it. And you're like, Hollywood can't beat the Bible in terms of stories of brutality, stories of violence, in the context of the very families that God is trying to use to bring wholeness and redemption to the world. When you read about Judah and Tamar, Judah's Tamar's father-in-law, and he sets her up for failure. And in the end, she is like relegated to prostitution and he sleeps with her and she becomes pregnant. And in this way, In this way, we have this sense in which even in families, it becomes systemic and systematic. We then do things on purpose. Judah had a choice. Judah could have done things differently in this family in which he was kind of the rising patriarch. Then we lead to see like extended, like not just families, but communities. In John chapter 9, we see Jesus has this encounter with a blind guy. And at the end of the chapter, we see this isn't just the trauma that happened to a, to a blind person. This is trauma that the entire culture of his neighbors, of his system, was perpetrating upon him. It was systematic. And then we have our own particular story in, in, in you know, the U.S., the cultural setting of, of chattel slavery, which, of course— you know, again, it's our own particular story, but like we in the U.S. are just descendants of the shadow of empire. When you when you read Persian Fire by Tom Holland, it's the story of the Persian Empire. And you're like, in their day, they were just gobbling up cities and countries, like, and, and it did, and, and killing hundreds of thousands of people. Not to mention the Romans. But you talk about trauma, where the Romans right. put literally thousands of people to death by crucifixion. And we want to look back and say, gosh, we are the heirs of Rome and Greece. God, and we're so pleased to be heirs of the people who came up with the idea of crucifying people. Hmm. And we're all, of course, descendants of Eden, where all this stuff becomes, you know, started. And I, I just want to say that it, it circles back to this notion of it begins with individuals. It takes place with individuals like Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel that grows out into the violence of the culture that we read about in the first 10 or 11 chapters of Genesis. And so it becomes systemic, but it's always a function of intimacy. So even if I get T-boned in the middle of an intersection, 
even if the lockers fall onto Rachel, the essence of what's going to happen is who's going to come for me? Who is going to be the relationship? Who, like, who's going to see me? Who sees Hagar in the desert when twice she is sent out? She runs out and then she sent. Who sees her? Behold the God who sees me. Which is why we talk so much about embodiment and sexuality as trauma being so deeply embedded in that because it's the emblem of intimacy. It is the physical exploration and, uh, and expression of our most intimate, fragile, vulnerable selves. And it's out of this that we move to protect and then do violence to others in traumatic ways. And so there is this rhythmic pattern between the intimacy of two individuals, like what was happening between you and the teacher, mm-hmm. that is also then in rhythmic pattern and systemically, is systemically being applied in an entire system that supports that, that then swings back around to the individual actions that are taking place, that are, that are drawn up into the system that supports it. And all these things that we're doing make it sometimes... Well, even when we start to talk about a listener, I'm, I'm just saying that when some, you know, if you're listening now, you might have this sense of like, I'm feeling overwhelmed, even as I hear this, hear this episode. And I want to remind us, beauty is coming for us. It's into the middle of this space of trauma, whatever form it is, whether it's neglect, whether it's active brutality, beauty is coming for us. The Holy Trinity is not satisfied to leave us where we are. Jesus himself knows what it means to have the experience of being traumatized. Mm. And in many respects, we would say those of us who know of trauma, whether it's blatant and obvious or whether it's that, you know, form of trauma that just happens multiple times a day in the, pri- in the privacy of our own mind that we bury and pay it and don't pay attention to so that nobody would know. Maybe I don't even know that the moment that we begin to wake up to its reality, we also wake up to the notion that, oh, this is what it was like to be Jesus. It's not just that we know that Jesus can say, I know what it's like to be you. He can say, I know what it's like to be him. And how else is it like to be him, to have a father and a spirit that is coming for us? that is present with us, that never leaves us or forsakes us, even in the moments of our worst, most heinous experience of trauma. And so as we've talked about these definitions and explored elements of it, there are nuances of it. And I I want us to just know that uh, God made the world knowing that trauma was coming. And at the end of the day, he knew that he would step into its path and that he would take it and absorb it so that he could then give us a very different kind of hope on the backside of Good Friday. And we want our listeners to know that beauty and hope are coming and they're here. And they want to bathe us in themselves. That's awesome, Kurt. As we uh, wrap up this episode, what in your mind, you know, we like to do these applications mm-hmm. um, after every episode so that uh, we can go a little deeper 
mm-hmm. um, and yeah. make things, you know, a little more practical maybe. Right. Um, right. So what did you have in mind for, for this week? So last week we invited our listeners to just begin to be curious about, you know, do you have a, an awareness of where trauma might have shown up for you? But this week, we, and, and we recognize that sometimes that very exercise can evoke things in us that are really kind of hard, difficult, or we're even just kind of puzzled. And this week, what I really want us to do practically is just to be curious about those two pillars that we talked about. Mm-hmm. The pillar of being overwhelmed, to just be curious about it. Most of us, when we feel overwhelmed, we just immediately want to do whatever we can to get out of it. I really want us... Yes, I see that's my no, Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. If I'm overwhelmed, you know, if the water's coming up over my nose and the weights yeah. are on my feet, I want to get the weight off my feet and I want to get out. I mean, yeah. what's wrong I with that? I, don't I perceive like... that you're saying that's wrong. <laughs> so my perception is... <laughs> it's like, I want to get no, out. I'm just going to... I want to observe my yes. hyperventilation. I'm going, observe, exactly. I'm going to observe the water coming into my right. nose. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, Kurt, just, yeah, I'm just going to do some meditative breathing here. Oh, no, wait, I can't. Because oh, I have to just perceive. No, no, okay. no tell me. So, no, I, well, so. I, think, I think it's important for us to practice paying attention to moments and places yeah. where we felt overwhelmed. To practice paying attention to that. And just listing those things and observing them. In small moments, not in, it doesn't have to be in big moments, but becoming familiar with where trauma might lie in very small ways, multiple ways. You had said, you had said, I, I love this illustration. You had said that you talked about a bruise and how if you biopsy a, a, a bruise on the arm or you know on the on the body, you take it out your body, it, it just it just looks like trauma. I mean, right. it's just you know carnage, but, yeah, carnage, right? But it's surrounded by good, healthy, you know, material that's going to help it heal. And it's really not, you know, but, but it is trauma. Right. It is. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so the degree to which we then uh, go from naming what we're overwhelmed by to then also name, like, what is it like for me to feel powerless? Hmm. Right. That's the other pillar. How do I experience powerlessness? Where do I sense it in my body? What are the thoughts that come to me? How do I how do I picture it in my mind? What are the what are the settings? What, do I feel powerless? Are there moments in my marriage? Are there moments in my parenting? Are there moments with my boss or my employee? Are there moments in my neighbors? Well, like where do I feel powerless? And like my parents might not even be alive, but like do I still when I think about them, like oh gosh, that felt sense of powerlessness with my mom or with my dad still comes. What do we do about that? And then the third, so listing these things again, not not to figure out what to do with them yet but just to be aware of them so that we don't have to be afraid of them. And then last, who are going to be your conversation partners? Name one or two people. This doesn't have to be a whole group. doesn't have to be a room full of people. One or two people that you could share this information with and that they can share it with you. Because in so doing, your mind, your heart, your body becomes connected. And remember, trauma is primarily for something to become traumatic it has everything to do with the degree to which i'm disconnected from within myself and from other people Mm -hmm. which is why i end up feeling overwhelmed and powerless to begin with and so we're listing the felt sense of overwhelm the number of places we're listing my experience of powerlessness how that presents itself to me and then we're going to take those and we're going to share that with somebody else and connect that to our stories great okay i'm on it right brother Appreciate you. Love you, man. 
Love you. Okay. Till next week. Till next week. This podcast is produced by Kurt Thompson, Pepper Sweeney, and myself, Amy Chella. Audio production and editing is by Keaton Simons. Video production and editing is by Mark Gould. Speaking of videos, each week we post the video version of every episode to our YouTube channel. You can find us on YouTube by going to youtube.com or your app and searching Being Known Podcast. If you'd like to connect with us, you can find us on social media at Being Known Pod. If you like this podcast, tell a friend. Tell all of your friends. And please like, rate, and review. Be well, be known.